Let's open our Bibles this morning to 1 Samuel. That's our text. It's 1 Samuel chapter 21, verses 1 through 15. We're continuing through 1st and 2nd Samuel in the studies in the life of David. The topic we're going to find there is this. Fearing King Saul, David flees to Philistine territory where he ends up pretending to be crazy for fear of King Ashish. The title of our message this morning, Still Crazy After All These Fears. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, thank you so much for your word which we have open before us now. It holds so much promise for us, Lord, in terms of what you said you could accomplish through your word, empowered by your Holy Spirit who lives within us. And so I pray, Lord, that you would make yourself real. You said that you would do abundantly beyond all that we would even ask or think, Lord. And so we want to have an expectation that that would take place here in our hearts today. Maybe there's some people here, Lord, that aren't saved at all. They've never met Jesus Christ, never admitted their need for a Savior, understood that they were a sinner and that only you can save them. Your word, Lord, can powerfully affect them this morning as well. The good news that you came and died and rose from the dead, that they might live forever. I pray that they would understand the grace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, this morning. We only want to honor you, Lord. We only want to bring glory to you. We only want to bow before you. Help us to do it, Lord, with the proper humility and with an understanding of your love for us. We pray this morning in Jesus' name and everyone said, Amen. Fred DeMara was, among other things, a civil engineer, a sheriff's deputy, an assistant prison warden, a doctor of applied psychology. He was a lawyer, a Benedictine monk, an editor, and a cancer researcher. The problem was he wasn't credentialed or even qualified for any of those jobs. He simply impersonated someone who was. His most famous exploit was to masquerade as a trauma surgeon aboard a Royal Canadian Navy destroyer during the Korean War. He managed to successfully improvise several major surgeries. DeMara never really heard anyone impersonating a doctor. The same can't be said for Gerald Barnes. Barnes stole the identity of a licensed medical doctor in 1976 and worked steadily as a physician in Southern California for the next few years. In 1979, his negligence and lack of true medical knowledge contributed to the death of John McKenzie, a 29-year-old undiagnosed diabetic. Barnes pleaded guilty to involuntary manslaughter. In our text in 1 Samuel, we're going to see David do a series of impersonations. In the house of the Lord at Nob, he impersonates a servant and then a soldier on a secret mission for King Saul. In the house of the Philistine king Ashish, he tries to impersonate the average Philistine to avoid being noticed and ends up impersonating someone who was insane. The question I want us to consider today is this. As Christians, do we ever impersonate someone we are not? And I think after studying these verses, you'll see that the answer is yes. There are times in serving the Lord that we are only impersonating a servant. There are times in our battling for the Lord that we are only impersonating a soldier. And if we're not careful, we can find ourselves out in the world impersonating the behavior of a non-believer. 
I'll I'll organize my thoughts around two points this morning. Number one, doing a spiritual impersonation in the house of the Lord won't help you to grow. And number two, doing a worldly impersonation in the houses of the lost won't help them to know. Let's look at verses 1 through 9. Doing a spiritual impersonation in the house of the Lord won't help you to grow. David, as you know if you've been following these studies, is on the run from King Saul. But where would he go to find help in his time of need? Well, to the Lord, of course, and to the Lord's servants. Would to God that believers and non-believers alike would flee to the Lord and to His servants when they need help. And thinking about that, I realize it makes it incumbent upon us that we keep ourselves as Christians in a place of readiness to help others. When you dial 911, you have a reasonable expectation that you're going to receive help as immediate as possible. Whether it's a police officer, a firefighter, an EMT, you're counting on those people in being in a state of readiness to, to be there for you and for your loved ones. And we have to have that same sense spiritually as Christians. We need to be ready for people all around us who have tremendous spiritual need, Christians and non-Christians. And and what a joy it is to be interrupted, as it were, in the midst of daily activities by the needs that others have, uh, to be able to pray with them and to minister to them. And so keep yourself in a state of constant readiness. David went to Nob. Not a bad choice. The tabernacle of the Lord was pitched at Nob and there were 86 priests serving their course there in the tabernacle. The Lord and His people were there and they were ready to help. And so we pick up the story in verse 1 of chapter 21. Now David came to Nob to Ahimelech the priest and Ahimelech was afraid when he met David and he said to him, Why are you alone and no one is with you? Ahimelech knew right away that something was very wrong. A national hero of David's stature would not be traveling alone, unarmed, with no comrades in arms. And so in verse 2, David said to Ahimelech, the priest, the king has ordered me on some business and said to me, don't let anyone know anything about the business on which I send you or what I've commanded you. And I have directed my young men to such and such a place. When David fled to Samuel some chapters earlier, he told him the truth. Now his situation had worsened. He had learned from his friend Jonathan that Saul's definite intent constantly was to kill him. This additional pressure brought forth a lie from the heart of the psalmist. And so rather than tell the truth as he had when he fled to Samuel at Naoth, Now he is telling a lie to Ahimelech. And maybe that's why trials are sometimes allowed by God to persist. I think I've met the pressure of the situation with some spiritual response. I'm actually feeling pretty good about myself and my walk with the Lord. But just a little more pressure in the same area and I find that I fall back into something fleshly. Faith needs this kind of testing. Here's how Alan Redpath describes it. I quote, So often the providences of God seem to run completely counter to His promises, but only that He may test our faith, only that He may ultimately accomplish His purpose for our lives in a way that He could never do if the path were always smooth. 
And so David, in a sense, facing the same trial, but it wasn't going away. It was deepening. It was worsening. And now he decided to meet it in the energy and the power of his own flesh, of his own wisdom, rather than depending upon God. David didn't just lie as bad as that was. He pretended to be someone he was not. He impersonated a servant on a mission for King Saul, which he certainly was not. As Christians, we are the Lord's servants. But there are times when we can be more like imposters in the way we approach serving Him. I'm going to explain what I mean now in these next few verses. So let's read verse 3. Now therefore, what have you on hand? Give me five loaves of bread in my hand, or whatever can be found. If you read that again and you read it carefully, you're going to see that it was a demand. David is demanding that Ahimelech give him what he deserved. He declared that he was a servant to the king and he demanded what he felt he deserved. Now, speaking of serving the Lord, it ought to humble us in the extreme that the Lord of glory, the Son of God, the risen Savior would allow us to really do anything in His name and on His behalf. It's not calling forth for a false humility, but just the, the, the bare fact that the Lord Jesus Christ allows us to serve Him is a tremendous thing. John the Baptist had the right idea. At one point he said of his serving the Lord that he was not worthy to stoop down and unloose the strap of Jesus Christ's sandals. And that's the attitude he had, not a false humility, but a true humility, knowing that whatever he was called upon to do was an amazing privilege and an amazing blessing. Yet sometimes I found in my life, I think and act as though I deserve something for serving Jesus. Otherwise, why would I ever grumble or complain or grow discouraged? When I begin to grumble and complain and grow discouraged in my serving the Lord, it is a kind of proof that I think I deserve something. I've lost that attitude that I'd be happy to just unloose the sandal of the Lord. I'm thinking, hey, I've been doing a lot more than that, and I'm kind of discouraged that there's no real response. I'm not getting what I deserve. I still serve, but I am now an imposter because all the grace has gone out of my serving. I'm no longer serving the Lord in His power and with His strength. I'm serving in the flesh. And I'm posing as a servant, as it were. Also, like David, we can demand certain things. Things like recognition or reward. Things like promotion and position. Those might be all right in the world, but they're never all right in the house of the Lord. And so if I'm serving and think I'm you know, a faithful servant, but I find that I'm passed over and nobody really recognizes me there's no plaque in the church with my name on it nobody even knows who I am the pastor ignores me he doesn't wave to me if he sees me in save Marty ignores me it happens I don't do it on purpose I'm just stupid but uh, anyway uh, and then you start to think why well, I, I, I demand that I find this recognition well then you've become an imposter. You're you're not with John the Baptist who would say, let me decrease that he may increase. No, you're saying, I want to increase. It's time for me to increase. I'm like a Chia pet. The water of the Holy Spirit's been coming on me and now I want to, you know, I should be flourishing and having a big, you know, head, you know, basically. And, 
You're an imposter. Deserving and demanding should not be in our vocabulary as the Lord's servants. Those things make me an imposter. Verse 4, And the priest answered David and said, There's no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread, if the young men have at least kept themselves from women. Now in the tabernacle was a table upon which each week the priest would arrange twelve loaves of holy bread called showbread. It means the bread of the face. It was typifying the twelve tribes of Israel in face-to-face fellowship with the Lord. When the old bread was replaced with fresh bread, it was to be eaten only by the priests, and even then certain rituals of ceremonial cleanliness had to be observed. So verse 5, Then David answered the priest and said to him, Truly women have been kept from us about three days since I came out, and the vessels of the young men are holy, and the bread is in effect common, even though it was consecrated in the vessel this day. So the priest gave him holy bread, for there was no bread there but the showbread, which had been taken from before the Lord, in order to put hot bread in its place on the day when it was taken away. Jesus will refer to this incident when the religious leaders give him a hard time about the fact that his followers were not uh, following all of the Sabbath laws. The Lord will speak favorably of Ahimelech's showing mercy to David and his men rather than sticking to the letter of the ceremonial law. Ceremony is always trumped by a moral obligation to show mercy to others. Uh, and so though, though the law said this bread is for the priests, only they can eat it and then they have to meet these certain requirements, if someone is starving, then that bread is edible on the, princ- on the greater principle of mercy. And David said, man, I'm hungry. We're, me and my men are hungry. We need bread. And Ahimelech said, well, you know, have you at least you know, kept yourself ceremonially clean? Yes, we have. All right, then eat the bread because the obligation to show mercy trumps ceremony. Uh, and by the way, it seems to indicate in the text that there wasn't a lot to eat at this time in in around the tabernacle. It was kind of lean times in the nation of Israel. And uh, it may not sound like much, but this bread was going to be the meal that Ahimelech and some of the priests were going to enjoy. But instead, he, as we said earlier, he recognized this as a time in his life, at a moment in his life when someone had great need. And he was willing to uh, and ready to help that individual and to give. It cost him some. It cost him a meal. doesn't sound like much, but uh, it's, it, it was a lot. And so he shared what he had with David, a great example for us of a servant. Even though I think Ahimelech is a smart guy, he probably knew a, that David wasn't really on the up and up with him. Uh, you know, he, what are you doing traveling alone? Where are these other guys? What are you, you're on a secret mission that you can't tell anybody about. It all sounds a little sketchy. Nevertheless, I'm going to help you. You know, a lot of times, like Jesus, if you're going to help people, even Christians, you're going to get ripped off. You're going to get lied to. You're going to get uh, overwhelmed sometimes. Not everybody's always telling you the truth. But we have an obligation to show mercy and to show love within reasonable boundaries. Now, verse 7, Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord. His name was Doeg. He is an Edomite, the chief of the herdsmen who belonged to Saul. Think of this for now as a footnote to this story. The importance of this information is going to become clear in chapter 22. Doeg will report back to Saul. 
Saul will declare everyone at Nob traitors and will order Doeg to kill all the priests, their families, and their livestock. Only one of the 86 priests escapes alive to report the massacre. And so David's decision to impersonate a servant and a soldier of Saul has absolutely disastrous consequences. Perhaps he thought he was trying to keep Ahimelech out of it and, and, and all, but it turned bad. Verse 8, David said to Ahimelech, Is there not here on hand a spear or a sword? For I have brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me because the king's business required haste. So the priest said, Sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you killed in the valley of Elah, there it is, wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you will take that, take it. For there is no other except that one here. And David said, There's none like it. Give it to me. Listen and see if this quote sounds familiar to you. You come to me with a sword, with a spear, and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel. Sound familiar? Those were David's words when he faced off against Goliath. Now, instead of trusting in the Lord, he would trust in the sword of the enemy that he had slain. And this is... I guess irony is, is, you know, is the word. Uh, here David is, is just on a slide away from the Lord and now he's asking for a weapon. He's pretending to be a soldier on a mission for Saul and the only sword available is the sword of Goliath. And I think it's God's way of trying to wake David up. Say, David, here's a sword, Goliath's sword. It didn't do him any good. In fact, you took this sword after I gave you a victory and you cut his head off with it. I wonder where his head was, by the way. Remember, he took that too. But anyway, um, and, and so, you know, God, I think sometimes when we're in a, a disobedient mode, when we're kind of backsliding, God will throw things in our path, won't he? Swords of Goliath, and we'll see, you know, huh, wh what do I need that for? I didn't need it then, why do I need it now? And we just aren't always thinking clearly. It wasn't as a soldier with armor and a sword that David had won his most famous victory. It was as a shepherd with a sling and a stone. But now David would impersonate a soldier. We too are the Lord's soldiers, but the weapons of our warfare are never physical or fleshly or worldly or carnal. They are always spiritual. When we find ourselves seeking after or depending upon things that are not spiritual... We are impersonating someone we are not. When we utilize the methods the world uses, we are impersonating something we are not. Now, the thing about this is we're in situations like this all the time. Maybe not every day, but all the time. Where someone says something to us or something happens and if we're not careful, our first reaction is really kind of a fleshly reaction. It's a defending of myself. It's an offending the other person. It's a digging in. It's an argument. And, and we get pretty good at it as Christians because you know, we do it with really super spiritual words and we find the Scripture, you know, my Scripture is better than your Scripture. Scripture says you should forgive me. Yeah, well, the Scripture says this about you. you know, and, and there's you know, these Bible wars going on and we have to be very careful about this. Because before we know it, these become our reactions. I remember when I was a salesman uh, for the title insurance company, this one particular situation came up. It was always 
It was like life and death. The real estate world in Southern California is life and death. I don't know what it is around here, but I mean, people, you know, it was crazy down there. And if you, if your company did anything to interrupt the sale or they didn't do what they were supposed to do, it was suicide time. I mean, it was, you know, people, so we did something. Our company was always making mistakes. I mean, you know, we're just people. And so we made this huge mistake. This property didn't get recorded. So that house didn't close and this didn't close and this guy couldn't move and that guy couldn't move. And on top of that, the realtor couldn't get his commission. That was the big thing. But so anyway, they start calling and they say, Gene, this is tailor made for you. You're the salesman. Go out there and uh, let them yell at you. Because that's really, you know, that's all you can do, you know. And so, and so I went out there and uh, actually it was a gal and uh, she wasn't one of our customers. I went out there and she, she, she just started in on me. And I mean, it was some really good yelling. I mean, just some of the best yelling I can remember, you know. And she would talk for a while and then I would say, uh, we made a huge mistake. And she, then she would talk some more and I'd say, yeah, I looked into it and we couldn't have made a bigger mistake if we had tried. And then she'd say, and, I'd, and finally, after about 10 minutes, she stopped and she smiled and she says, I can't even get any satisfaction out of this. She says, so I'm going to stop now. What are you going to do about this? And I said, well, here's what we've done and you know, we had it. So It was fun. It was actually, I enjoyed it. I love stuff like that, you know. But... Bring that over into the Christian realm and, and, you know, somebody says something, it's like, well, wait a minute. Who do you think you're talking to? I'm the pastor. And, and, you know, you, and you do this too and we all, and we start to forget that this is not spiritual. This is not how a soldier fights in the Lord's army. When people say something unkind to you, what do you say back to them? You say something kind back to them. Oh, man, I knew I should have stayed home today. But anyway, that's the deal. Never borrow the weapons of your enemy. It's like going to a gunfight with a knife. You're in trouble. The spiritual resources at our disposal are always more powerful. I don't do any impressions of celebrities. I wish I did. It's kind of fun. Pastor Skip Heitzig of Calvary Chapel of Albuquerque does a great Billy Graham. He's better Billy Graham than Billy Graham. It's fan. My friend Dennis Davenport, who I saw this past Sunday, uh, does a great Chuck Smith, you know. And so there's guys, but I don't. It's pretty hard to do impressions unless you have a special talent for it. But unlike celebrity impressions, doing impressions of a servant or of a soldier are easy for a Christian. In fact, it can be easier to do the impression than to be the real thing. It, it's easier for me to be uh, demanding and think I deserve things and grow discouraged or to fight with the wrong weapons than it is to really depend upon the Lord, to just yield to the Lord. But let's be the real thing. Servants and soldiers who depend upon the empowering of the Holy Spirit to serve with joy and to fight with spiritual weapons. You know, and I, I don't know if I recommend this or not, but let's say you're with one of your friends. Christian friend and they start telling you they start telling you how discouraged they are in the ministry or or they start complaining about something you know they did this and nobody recognized them are you willing to say in love hey right now you're impersonating a servant what what are you talking about yeah I can't imagine John the Baptist doing this the one time he had a lapse in the prison Jesus had to correct him and so, you know, let's get back to being a servant. Let's not just impersonate servants or soldiers. Let's be them. Now, verses 10 through 15, doing a worldly impersonation in the houses of the lost won't help them to know. David went from bad to worse. He left the house of the Lord and went to the houses of his enemies, the Philistines. 
It's a picture for us of our lives out among non-believers. Verse 10. Then David arose and fled that day from before Saul and he went to Ashish, the king of Gath. Gath? You've got to be kidding me. Gath is the hometown of Goliath and his five brothers. And so David strolls into town wearing Goliath's sword, probably dragging it behind him, making quite a bit of noise. Goliath was like nine feet tall. He had a big sword. It wasn't like a little, you know, leatherman or something that he had on his side that he would whip out like you guys have. It was big. And so David's dragging this sword behind him in Gath. This is like, and some of you guys will appreciate this, it's like wearing the wrong colors in gang territory. You just don't want to be doing that. You're going to get killed. But David's doing it. I can't even imagine what David is thinking. For our purposes, he is a believer trying to blend in among non-believers without causing any waves. He doesn't feel safe in Israel anymore. He's, you know, he goes to the tabernacle, but Doeg is there. And so he knows he's been busted out. And so he thinks, I'll impersonate a Philistine and go to the nearest Philistine town and walk around Gath. I've even got a Philistine sword, so they certainly won't notice. Verse 11, And the servants of Asius said to him, Isn't this David, the king of the land? Didn't they sing of him to one another in dances, saying, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands? The non-believing Philistines had a better grasp of God's plan for David than David did. Non-believers aren't always correct in their assessment of what it means to be a Christian. In fact, mostly they're wrong. Think back to when you were a non-believer, if, if you got saved later in life. You thought that in order to come into the presence of God, you had to do something. You had to clean up your life. You had to do some ritual religion. Uh, whether it was, you know, whatever the Buddhists were telling you or the, you know, the Roman Catholics were telling you or this group was telling you or that group. There was always a series of steps and if you did these five things or ten things or whatever, then you could go to heaven. And, and then you came into contact with the real gospel of Jesus Christ that there's nothing you can do to go to heaven. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's none righteous, not even one. And all of your righteousness, the best you could possibly do, if the spotlight of heaven were put on you, you'd be dressed in filthy rags, unable to enter into heaven. And then you understood the gospel, that it was by grace through faith that you're saved, that Jesus Christ came as a man and He took your place. He died for you, He took the penalty for sin and the punishment for it, and He rose again. That if you would believe in Him, you would have eternal life. And so non-believers, they don't understand that. We have to share that gospel with them. But a lot of times they do know when you're blowing it. It's amazing how a non-believer can be so ignorant of the real gospel and yet recognize when you are absolutely backslidden. There's a sense, I think it's a spiritual thing that the Lord allows, where they look at you and they say, this isn't right. And so think of this, you're David, you're impersonating a Philistine, and and the... The Philistines are looking and say, I think that's David. I think that's the legendary hero who defeated Goliath in the power of the Hebrew God. No, is that him? A guy like that wouldn't be blowing it like that, would he? Would he be here walking among us, hiding? What does he have to hide from? He's the kind of guy that could walk into town by himself and say, I'm here, you're not. I mean, you know, I mean, this... 
he defeated Goliath. I mean, none of these guys could go against Goliath even if they wanted to. He was fearless. And so it was, a, it was something they couldn't quite understand. They, they knew he was blowing it. Now listen, the world is getting worse and worse, isn't it? I mean, I, would, would you agree that the world is getting worse in terms of its morality and different things? After, I, after first service, one of the brothers was telling me that they read an article yesterday where um, the, the uh, entertainment people, whoever they are, they're trying to get more um, positive images of abortion in television programs. Uh, and they were talking about having an episode of Family Guy, the cartoon where there was a positive portrayal of abortion so that people you know, would have a more positive appreciation. Is that weird? Uh, is it just me or is that a little weird? You know? Can you imagine that 15 years ago? Can you imagine Family Guy 15 years ago? I mean, I've never seen it, but I've seen commercials for it. And, you know, can, I mean, the world is getting worse, so we agree with that. But here's what happens. This is what happens to all of us. The world is over here, and we're back here, and then the world moves. It gets worse, and it comes over here, and we kind of move with it. We're following in the wake. We're not as bad as the world, but we're becoming desensitized. Let's admit that we watch things on TV that would have been considered anathema just 10 years ago. Uh, I think we need to get a hold of ourselves sometimes and think, wow, what am I doing? Did this become less pornographic than it was 10 years ago? No, it's just become more acceptable. And so we're always having to fight this battle. Now, Christianity isn't about what you don't do. I don't want to get into all the programs you should watch or shouldn't watch because they'd just be whatever I do. And, and I'd want to promote that on you. But Christianity is about what you do. It's about the positive approach to the gospel. But in general, we need to admit that we are becoming desensitized. That is the strategy of the world that the devil runs. It's to desensitize Christians so that you, yes, you're holier than the world, but so What? You're not maintaining separation from the world, and so we need to be careful. Verse 12, Now David took these words to heart and was very much afraid of Ishish, the king of Gath, so he changed his behavior before them. He pretended madness in their hands, scratched on the doors of the gate, and let his saliva fall down on his beard. I was going to act that out this morning, but I'll... The saliva part, I, I just, I'm doing that just by talking. But anyway, then Ashish said to his servants, Look, you see the man is insane. Why have you brought him here? Have I need of a madman that you have brought this fellow to play the madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? Now the diagnosis for a person acting insane in those days was that he was troubled by an evil spirit. It was not the kind of thing you wanted to mess around with. You couldn't risk getting the evil spirit upset with you. Better to leave him alone and encourage him to go somewhere else. And so Ashish is saying, look, maybe it's David, maybe it isn't, but I'm not going to touch him because he's troubled with an evil spirit. And you know how that goes. As soon as I kill him, I'll be troubled by an evil spirit because these evil spirits, they like to be in people. And so just let's leave him alone. Let's get rid of him. And so... As I said earlier, here's David, the giant killer of legend and song, the man after God's own heart, upon whom the anointing of the Holy Spirit had come. Here he is impersonating a Philistine, and when that failed, he acted as if an evil spirit had come upon him. 
A Christian impersonating a non-believer, becoming more and more worldly, looks insane to non-believers. You're a Christian, you tell people you've been delivered from sin, you've been set free from sin and death, you've gone from darkness to light, you had all these habits in your life and God took them away and, and set you on solid ground, He saved your marriage, He saved everything about you. Wow, that's pretty impressive. I'm, I'm not ready for that right now. And then they watch you for a while. And then a year goes by or two years or five years and it's like, I thought God delivered you from that. Oh yeah, I can handle it now. Yeah, it was, a, it was a chain and a weight to me years ago, but now, you know, it's a liberty. I'm all over it now. It doesn't fly with non-believers. They look and they think, well, you're insane. If I got released from prison, I wouldn't go and live next door to it and then move back in. It's kind of nice, you know. Well, I can come in and out. I'm not really imprisoned. I can come in and out. The food's good. I mean, people think you're crazy. And that's what's going on here. The old cliche still applies. Be in the world, but not of the world. Look back upon your walk with the Lord. Are you more or less worldly than you were a few years ago? Have you relaxed your standards to be more like those of the world? Have you adjusted the boundary lines to live closer to the things of the world? No sincere Christian wants to be an impersonator. Occasionally we need to let the Lord search our hearts to show us what it means to be His servant his soldier, his saint. And so take a moment as we close to think. Think about your attitude as a servant. It is a humbling privilege to serve your king. Let's replace grumbling with grace. Destroy any thoughts we deserve anything. Disown all demands. Defeat discouragement to serve him in his power and strength. And you know, this isn't just a one-time thing. I've told you this before, and I, whenever young guys are coming up in the ministry... I always tell them, every time I see them practically, your number one enemy in the ministry is going to be discouragement. You know why? Because I've been discouraged so many times. And every time the Lord has to come and say, are you serving men or are you serving me? You can never, there's a sense in which you can't really ever be discouraged if it's the Lord that you're serving. Nevertheless, we grow discouraged and we have to have these attitude checks, these heart checks and say, Lord, I don't want to impersonate a servant. I want to really be one. I want to have that joy of just serving you regardless what other people are doing. Think about your attitude as a soldier. Abandon every carnal weapon in your arsenal in favor of the fruit of the Holy Spirit and the spiritual resources that are promised you in abundance. Next time you're in a struggle with another Christian, they accuse you of something, something's going on, just say, you know, I love you. I love you. I want to be reconciled with you. Let's pray about this. Let, what? This isn't any fun at all. No, it's not fun, but it's real. Think about your separation from the world. Retreat back to boundaries you may have crossed that blur the distinction between you and non-believers. There's nothing in the world that's better than what the Lord has for you in terms of your spiritual resources. If you're not yet a believer, yield to the conviction of God the Holy Spirit who is even now prompting you that you are a sinner in need of Jesus as your Savior. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for the life of David. He's in a bad place right now, Lord. He's lying. He's impersonating. Nevertheless, your grace is so sufficient for him. 
It's not a matter of sinning that grace might abound, but it's a matter of abounding grace when we sin. And I pray, Lord, that we would uh, relate to Him without really going in that direction. That we'd understand how easy it is to impersonate these things and want to be genuine. And we can, Lord, because You said that You indwell us and that we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. The world, the flesh, the devil, man, these are pressures, Lord, that are trying to crush us and destroy us. We feel it all the time. And yet You have defeated these things on the cross. We need to walk by faith and not by sight. Lord, I know that as long as I am in this body of flesh, I'm going to struggle with these things. I just pray that I could have more victory than loss. And for my brothers and sisters as well, that we could have more victory and less loss. That we would encourage one another. That our joy would return. That our joy would be full. Knowing that we serve a big God, a mighty God, a great God. Our trials may not change. They may worsen, Lord. And that's no reason for us to think that you have changed. You're the immutable, unchanging God in your love and in your grace. And Lord, if something's going on, it must be something that you've allowed. So we commit ourselves to it. Lord, if there's anybody here that doesn't know you in a saving way, I pray that today, Lord, their heart would be convicted of sin and of righteousness and of the judgment to come. And that as we close our service this morning, they come forward and that they would pray and ask you to save them. Do that, Lord. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.